This episode of Irish Mythology Podcast is sponsored by McCaffrey Crafts, specialising in authentic walking sticks and shillelaghs handcrafted in County Kerry from Blackthorn that grows out of Irish soil. Find them online at McCaffreyCrafts.com. That's M-C-C-A-F-F-R-E-Y-C-R-A-F-T-S dot com. Hello there and welcome back to the Irish Mythology Podcast where today Lou conducts a roll call that's more akin to Al Pacino in Any Given Sunday than your old primary school teacher. I'm Mark Sohishkin. What if your old primary school teacher did remind you of Al Pacino in Any Given Sunday? (laughs) Anyway, uh, we will also have a wee chat about the stakes of play in the coming battle and what a Fermorian victory would mean. I'm Stephanie Hearney. It wouldn't mean anything good, that's for sure. No, it certainly wouldn't. Anyway, uh, before we continue, we actually do have some very good news that we want to share. Uh, We've been nominated in the Best Fiction category in the Irish Podcast Awards. So a really big thank you, Gurmila Mogwiv, to all our listeners, patrons and friends for tuning in and supporting us along the way. Yeah, it's really an honour and there's lots of great podcasts nominated in the various categories and it's really great to be among them. But back to today's episode. Today's story is the second of three that act as a prologue to the battle in our retelling of the saga, the second battle of Moitura. Part one was almost entirely original fiction based on information in the other parts of the saga. Today's is very much more an adaptation. It's based on sections 95 to 120 of the text in the early 16th century manuscript Harleian 5280. Last time we heard how the Formorians are facing opposition from the guardian spirits of the land in their march to meet the two a day in battle. Today we see how Lou and the gods are preparing for that confrontation and we get a glimpse of Lou's frustration at the decision to keep him back from the battle for his own protection. Now before we get into the story part I just want to remind listeners that we have bonus content over on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Irish mythology podcast. But now we present The Road to Moitura, Episode 2, War Cry of the Gods. Confrontation looms. Having landed in the west of Ireland, Indek MacDaydownan marshals his destructive divisions to win Fomorian control over the entire country. Only Lu Lafada's band of otherworldly warriors stand against the approaching darkness, bolstered by the certainty that the Dagda has won the support of the spirits of the land. But their position has been exposed. As the enemy marches towards their forward camp, the two a day prepare for collision with their mortal foe. Lu Lafada, Samaldanach, Lanenschlech. Lambenach Machnir Conmachmachin sits in his hut in the middle of a great forest, meditating on the nature of the battle ahead. With complex arithmetic, he calculates the number of warriors the Formor are likely to have in their legions, and how many are likely to fall as a result of the efforts of the Dagda, the Morrigan, and Indach's daughter. It's a great number, he thinks. They are coming. 
His mind drifts off to his earliest memories of the day his father began instructing him in combat. He first taught him how to use a slingshot, then a spear, then to ride a horse and a chariot, and how to defend himself with a shield. When his skills in those arts surpassed his teacher, he went to masters of other arts to study under them, and he became accomplished in every single discipline. Yet they insist I should not fight. He feels a presence in the room. His eyes open abruptly. His grandfather, Dean Keth, stands before him, holding a parchment etched with enumerations of their own military strength and armaments, some of which are still warm from Gobnu's forge. Dean Kecht hands the parchment to Lou. I know you're eager to fight, Dean Kecht says, putting a hand on his grandson's shoulder. You will get your chance. They are reluctant after what happened to Nuda in the battle with the Fur Bullock. They want to protect you. Lou takes a cursory look at the parchment. He already knows what information it contains. I'm not Nuda, he responds. I do not require the protection of my nine foster fathers. I feel like a prisoner. Dean Kech smiles sympathetically. Sometimes to be a leader to be entrusted with the fate of the world and everything in it is to be a prisoner. You can't escape your destiny. It is my destiny to fight, Lou responds sourly. Dinkacht nods. Then when destiny calls, you will fight. Come, your army is waiting for you. Lou takes his spear and his shield and follows his grandfather out of the hut. His nine foster fathers, who had been keeping watch outside, circle around to guard him. Talastam and Achtam and Eru, Rechthed Finn and Fossid and Felamid, Eivar and Skibar and Min. They take him through the camp, thousands of tents as far as the eye can see. The expectant eyes, the pervasive odour of cabbage soup, warriors chanting his name, until he arrives at the place where the other leaders of the Tuatha and the riders of the Shi have gathered. A great roar goes up when he stands before them. He raises his spear and begins to speak. The dreadful Formorian host marches to meet us. If we fail today, it will spell the end of the God people and the end of Ireland. It will be the beginning of eternal tyranny, an endless era of exploitation, a perpetual continuum of chaos and enduring destruction. We must not fail. Are you ready? Another cheer goes up. Lou raises his spear again, then beckons for silence. 
before striding over to where they stand. Gobnu, what power do you wield for us? Gobnu steps forward. Even if the battle rages for seven years, for every spear that separates from its shaft or sword that will break in battle, I will provide a new weapon in its place. No spear point which my hand forges will make a missing cast. No skin which it pierces will taste life afterwards. Dove, the Formorian smith, cannot do that. And Dienkecht, Lou continues. What power do you wield? Dienkecht steps forward. Any warrior who is wounded, unless their head is cut off or the membrane of their brain or their spinal cord is severed, I will make them perfectly whole for the battle the next day. Lou continues in this manner, addressing each of them individually. And Credna. I'll supply them all with rivets for their spears and hilts for their swords and bosses and rims for their shields. And Luchta. I will supply them all with whatever shields and spear shafts they need. Akma. I will be a match for the king and 27 of his comrades and I will win a third of the battle for the two a day. And you, Morrigan. I will observe them from on high. I will hunt them down and rain down bloody destruction upon them. And you, sorcerers, what will you do? The soles of their feet will be visible after they have been toppled by our craft so that they can easily be killed. We will take two-thirds of their strength from them and prevent them from urinating. And you, cupbearers, we will bring a great thirst upon them and they will not find a drink to quench it. And you, druids, we will bring showers of fire upon their faces so they cannot look up and our warriors will easily be able to kill them. And corpora, what can you do? Not hard to say, I will satirise them and shame them until they are so weakened by the sharpness of my art that they offer no resistance to our warriors. And you, Beichulia and Dianon, my witches, what will you do? We will enchant the trees and the stones and the sods of the earth so that they will be a host under arms against them and they will scatter in flight, terrified and trembling. And you, the Dagda, what will you do? I will smite them by equal measures of force and sorcery. I will smash their bones with my club until they are like hailstones under the hooves of horses on the battlefield. Lou returns to his position, facing them all as a group. You are ready, he roars. Gather your forces. We march upon Moichura. Well, that was unlike any roll call I ever experienced in school. 
<laughs> should hope so. Um, yeah, Lou's, he's really getting the two a day all roiled up. Um, he sort of just forces them to justify themselves being at the battle in the first place and being part of the two. It's a real, you know, what are you going to do about this? And you, and you, and you over there, what are you at, you know? Yeah, and, and there's also kind of a role reversal from the scene from the earlier part of the saga where Lou goes to Tara and he gets questioned by the gatekeepers. Yeah, where he's told that to become a member of the two a day, he has to be master of an art. And he gives us a really long list of them that he's mastered. Um, that was back in episode 19, if you want to go and give that a listen. Uh, but now, you know, Lou's in charge and he's making the others account for themselves and maybe visualize or, or depict what they're going to do on the battlefield and and let them know that you know they actually have to live up to their promises can't be all talk <laughs> yeah and looking at it from the you know the storyteller's point of view it does a really good job of raising the tension and letting the audience know that the climax of this story is afoot and it's going to be action-packed in that sense it kind of reminds me of there's a scene in uh, the mcu film the avengers where they're standing among these ruined buildings in new york and some huge monsters come out of an internet dimensional portal and that loki opened up and um captain america does this kind of roll call thing that's very like that you know but instead of asking them what they're going to do he's kind of saying you're going to do this you're going to do this and then he just turns around to the hulk at the end and he goes and hulk smash (laughs) Um, Yeah, we were saying that this story is mainly based on sections 95 to 120 of the Second Battle of Maitura. And most of these sections are actually one-liners, with one section showing Lou posing the question to an individual member of the two a day, and the next showing the answer. Um, In our adaptation, the answers are not quite word for word the whole way through, but they're they're almost allowing for some modernisation of language. Uh, The only part of this story where there's a significant bit of adaptation here is at the beginning, which in the medieval manuscript version of the story is section 95, which reads, In order to protect him, the men of Ireland had agreed to keep Lou from the battle. His nine foster fathers come to guard him. Tullestam and Echtham and Eru, Rachtedvin and Fossid and Felamid, Ibar and Shkibar and Min. They feared an early death for the warrior because of the great number of his arts. For that reason, they did not let him go to the battle. And then section 96 simply reads, Then the men of rank among the two a day were assembled around Lou. He asked his smith, Gonu, what power he wielded for them. And then the roll call basically proceeds from there. And we were talking about the demands of modern storytelling in the last episode. And I thought based on everything we know about Lou from the story so far, he's not going to like being held back from the battle. So we wanted to get up close and explore how he might be feeling in that moment. And it's also a little nod to Flann O'Brien's novel, uh, Swim Two Birds, in that scene, and Gold Star, if you spotted that. We brought, actually, do you want to tell them what the nod to Flann O'Brien is? People will be sitting wondering. Um, Does it devalue the Gold Star? Yeah. Right, grand. Um, Maybe you'll do a competition sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Obscure references. Um, yeah, so we brought Dean Kecht in uh, at that point to be the sort of wise older figure 
offering advice because as already established in the aforementioned episode 19, The Rise of Lou, he is Lou's grandfather. In the part of our saga so far featuring Balor, that was drawn mainly from folklore and the fate of the children of Turin, there's an awful lot of talk about destiny and how the Formorian giant is destined to die by the hand of his daughter's son. Balor runs off to face that destiny. So we mirrored that here, showing Dean Kecht telling Lou that whatever his destiny is, it will come to pass, regardless of him being held back from the fight. Themes of destiny are frequent in mythology. In, in the modern Western world, we're usually led to believe that we control our destiny, that we have choices and free will and things like that. But in the medieval world, your destiny must have seemed inescapable. You were born in a place, in a social class, into a profession, and the likelihood would be that you would die in that place, uh, in that class and in that profession. So the idea of destiny probably wasn't a mystical, esoteric idea that it is today. It was just life. It's like that um, Libertine song, you know, the line, we'll die in the class we were born. Oh, yeah. Profound. <laughs> and dark. I was about to say, we're not that far off. <laughs> we're like. not, we're not, but we're, we're, we have the illusion of choice and you know the illusion of the choice of the 40-hour work week yeah <laughs> you're lucky um uh, a famous example of destiny as a theme occurs in voluspa in norse mythology where odin learns from a crs that the death of his son balder will be the signal that ragnarok the final battle between the gods and their enemies is about to begin although odin sets out to best destiny he still does all of the things that the CRS says he will do with the predicted results. And he obviously knows that he can't change fate because he also knows that everyone's destiny, even the gods, is decided by the, the Nornir, uh, three giantesses who weave the threads of fate. And maybe that's the, the meaning of life. You know, you, you just have to pretend you have choice. <laughs> Make your peace with it. Yeah. Um, but this is a dark episode. <laughs> Usually we're much more optimistic about so, things. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know what happens. Uh, in, the, in the second battle of Moitura, um, but actually more in the spin-off, The Fate of the Children of Turin, we see Nuda trying to avoid the destined confrontation between the two a day and the Fomor. Lou is always race, racing towards his destiny to confront it. And eventually it is Lou who is declared the war leader of the gods and given the task of preparing them to meet this destiny. But now he's being held back from the actual fighting and we feel he's not going to like that, uh, hence this scene. In a funny way, it's almost like the Garden of Gethsemane in reverse, you know, in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark particularly. You see Jesus having this quiet moment before he faces his destiny, but he pleads with his father. Uh, who doesn't answer to let him avoid it. After that, we get to the roll call and it's basically the gods telling us what skills they have and how they're going to apply them. Uh, some of these will be familiar enough because they'll have appeared in other episodes. Uh, the Dagda, the Morrigan, Akma, Dean Kecht, Gobnu, Corpora have all had major roles in this saga so far. Uh, you will have heard Luchta and Kredna mentioned as well. Uh, then you have some, you know, the unnamed sorcerers and cupbearers making some quite interesting promises uh, with the sorcerers, among other things, saying that they will take two thirds of their strength from them and prevent them from urinating. Mm. 
Um, what a like a thing to afflict <laughs> on someone, you know, like imagine you're like your, your skill, like what are you going to do in battle? I'm going to inflict really terrible bouts of cystitis on <laughs> these people. Like, I mean, that's like, that is a low key level of extreme cruelty, you know, but anyway. I know, yeah, the public transport system can do that for you in Ireland now. I've often, <laughs> I've often been in a bus stuck in traffic. <laughs> No toilet on the bus. Oh my god! Oh god. Um, anyway, uh, and then they. See, I took a very literal. Like, there's they were actually going to prevent them as opposed to just like deprive them of a place to pee. Oh no, that's probably what it is in it. Yeah, but I mean, the effect is the same. If you don't have a place to pee, you still can't go. Like, if especially if you're on a crowded bus, it's not as if. You could nip off down an alley on a crowded bus. Do you know, I feel like this conversation has gone in a direction <laughs> that probably, <laughs> probably shouldn't. Anyway, uh, we'll go back to the cupbearers. So they, they, the cupbearers then say that they'll bring a great thirst upon them and that they will not find a drink to quench it. Um, awful cruel as well. And I suppose like that's the nature of going into battle. You're not there to make friends. But you'd think that if the sorcerers were going to prevent them from from urinating, the cupbearers would have kind of been better off making them for more kind of thirsty <laughs> and giving them plenty to drink. I don't know. Yeah. You know? Um, not very well, uh, not very well coordinated. Yeah. Reminded me of something from a Wu-Tang album, but actually it's, we don't have, we, we couldn't repeat it here. Um, what is it? There's like a bit before a song where, um, they're, they're doing trying to one up each other and saying how to like torture each other. And is this one on goes, I saw your ass Enter the Wu Tang, yeah. yeah. I saw your ass and keep feeding you and feeding you and feeding you. Oh, yeah, and feeding you and <laughs> feeding you. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe you could just like bleep out that one line and people could go off and listen. <laughs> maybe. It's a great album. It is. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah one of my favorites. Um, only second to Liquid Swords by Jizz and Wu-Tang Corpus, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but yeah, you're right. It shows a real lack of coordination. Um, and Lou probably should have pulled them up on it. You know, like, lads, I like where you're going with this, but have you thought about giving them plenty of water? <laughs> um, this, that, it's, it's also reminiscent of something that happens in the first Battle of My Tour, where the Firbolg King, Oakwood McCurk, has a great thirst cast upon him. Um, through sorcery and all the wells are hidden from him so he can't get a drink you know and that's what leads to his demise Th then you have the two witches uh Bikul and Danan promising to enchant the trees and the stones and the sods of earth so that there will be a host under the arms or a host under arms against them and they will scatter in in flight terrified and trembling uh which sounds very familiar to the promise index daughter uh, makes to the Dagda that we hear about in the episode The Dagda's Club in Love and War, which makes you wonder if she is supposed to be one of these two or if the author drew from multiple sources and assumed that there were two different characters but they were actually supposed to be the one. Um, no way known, of course, but it's fun to speculate. Yeah, um, Bay Huila and Dianon are mentioned elsewhere in Irish mythology in the metrical Dinshankas. Uh, Bay Huila is enlisted to help other sorcerers defeat a Greek witch, no less, uh, the titular Carmen. Uh, then in the death tales of the Tua de Danon in the 12th century Book of Leinster, we are told, quote, Bay Huila and faithful Dianon, both the farmeresses died 
An evening with druidry at the last by the grey demons of air. What did they die of? They died of an evening. It's a bit of a hyperno-English pun there for you. And also I've done a short bonus feature over on the Patreon that you can get if you sign up on the Banshee tier or above, uh, which is about that very subject. Hiberno-English, the Irish dialect, dialect of English, and how Lady Gregory uses it in her complete Irish mythology. Um, anyway, the two of they are ready for the fight, but what would it mean for them to lose? Bad buzz, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Um in our adaptation, you'll have heard Lou spell it out when he says, if we fail today, it will spell the end of the God people and the end of Ireland. It will be the beginning of eternal tyranny, an endless era of exploitation, a perpetual continuum of chaos and enduring destruction. We must not fail. Are you ready? Uh, but in the actual medieval text, it's a bit more subtle. Throughout the saga and in other stories featuring the Formore, we hear about the, these villains stealing cattle, destroying crops, general thievery, vandalism, and what have you. Uh, their actions are a bit like some of the more mischievous of the Aishi, also known as the, the other crowd, also known today as the fairies, but on a much grander scale. Um, they aren't just stealing from individual farmers who haven't taken the necessary precautions. They are a menace to the whole country. They bring famine, plague, poverty, and ultimately death um, and while they are raiders attacking and pillaging Ireland, they are a threat to prosperity. But if they win and they rule, then it's simply the end of everything. Uh, so for Morian victory would essentially spell the end of the world, as in the Irish Ragnarok. And really, when you think of it, the, the you know, in, in Ragnarok, it's, you know, basically the whole universe burns down apart from a little root of Drassel. Um, whereas the Irish Ragnarok is, oh, geez, we won't be able to get a bit of milk for the tea. <laughs> Not that they had tea back then, but you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> just just, just in case there's any pedants out there listening. Oh, sorry. Don't worry. They had their magic spears. Yeah. But like, you know, we'll complain about the fact that you mentioned the tea. <laughs> but anyway, go on. Anyway, on a grander cosmic scale, the Fomorians represent chaos, the gods representing order, and you can draw the interpretation of them being two essential components of a cosmic ballet. You can draw the, a comparison with the science-based story of the Big Bang. The Big Bang is a chaotic rupture with a pre-existing singularity that sends all of the building blocks of the universe hurtling out into the void where they are put back in order, you know, ostensibly by gravity, but, you know, maybe by the gods. Eventually things <laughs> will come full circle and then chaos will return. And the heat death or the entropy of the universe, depending on which is correct, probably neither. Um, <laughs> in Norse mythology, the agents of chaos win at Ragnarok in a way, but they don't end up ruling everything. They just destroy the nine worlds and the world tree Yggdrasil goes up in flames and it kills most of the gods. But there's a kind of an epilogue where we see the foundations of a new order coming out of that chaos. And I suppose because we're not the Norse mythology podcast, I can spoiler that. Um, but it is a spoiler if you don't know the story. But it's, you know, over a thousand years old, so you should have caught up in it by now. Um, <laughs> the statute of limitations has passed. So basically, Baldur, who dies to set Ragnarok in motion, is brought back to life for the battle. 
and it's him and some of the younger children of the gods that become the new gods and start the new um, the new order and the new universe that comes out of the chaos. Yeah, so you could look at the four more as representing that chaos. Uh, luckily for the two a day and for us, Lou is destined to defeat Balor. And if destiny plays out the way it usually does in mythology, then the end isn't nigh. Um, and we'll have plenty more episodes to get through. But uh, we'll have to wait a few weeks to find out for sure, because that, unfortunately, is all we have time for today. Yep. If you've been enjoying the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron. The Irish Mythology podcast will always be free to listen to on the usual podcast platforms, but it is not free to make. Your financial support can help us keep making it and continue to invest in things like additional recording equipment and books for research. There's a range of extras there available only to subscribers, including story scripts, story-only audio, enhanced show notes, bonus episodes like the one I mentioned earlier on Hibernal English and Augusta's, Augusta, Lady Augusta Gregory's Gods and Fighting Men. Uh, so go and have a look at patreon.com forward slash Irish Mythology Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, the Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram at Irish Mythology and online at Irish Mythology Podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another platform that includes ratings, and if you like the show, do us a favour and give us a five-star rating. It really helps us reach a wider audience. Also, maybe send an episode to someone you think might enjoy it. Um, And I suppose, look, if you wake up at the weekend, maybe you might wake up of a Sunday morning feeling a bit parched, and you could think to yourself, God, is this a hangover? It might not. It might be that one of the gods has afflicted a terrible cruelty upon you. But drink some water, you'll be grand. Until next time, slan. Slan. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Nihirni. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.